everyone. Uh, like Greg said, my name is Zach Meyer, and I am a deacon and also one of the interns here at Memorial. Uh, my wife and I moved here in 2016. My wife's name is Anna, by the way. Um, I'm a student at Covenant Seminary, and my wife is a kindergarten teacher at Kip Academy, so she saves the world every day. Um, and I thought to start today, I'd tell you a little story about when I first moved to St. Louis. When we moved uh, in 2016, we got here in the summertime, and in the summertime, they do Shakespeare in the Park right over here in Forest Park. Um, we went, me and Anna went, with a lot of our friends who we knew who were also moving to Covenant Seminary. And then while we were there, we even met um, some other people who we then became friends with. Um, we played Frisbee before the play. We ate a lot of good food. We had good drinks. We had a lot of laughter. And then we hung out afterwards and just had a fantastic time. Then flash forward a couple months later, my wife and I are with our friend Jonathan Kruger, who some of you all know. We're walking around Forest Park during the fall, and both of them kind of point to this grassy area right over to the left of us and say, yeah, this is where you know they do all the Shakespeare plays during the summertime. And I'm looking at this grassy area, and I'm like, no, no way. This is not how I remember it. This isn't what it is at all. Y'all are totally wrong. And then Anna proceeds to actually tell me, like, no, actually, like, this is where we sat. We sat right here and watched this play. And you played Frisbee right over there. And I'm like, ah, I still don't know. It still just doesn't look like that. And then Jonathan, who's lived here for over 12 years, points out for the fact that, like, yeah, I've, I've been here a lot. This is where they do the Shakespeare plays. <laughs> so I have a clear choice ahead of me, a clear logical decision. And I follow that decision, and I double down. They're totally wrong. <laughs> I'm right. Forest Park must have done something where they moved it since the last performance. I don't understand it, but I know I'm right, and they're wrong. And I continue on, and we're arguing about this and talking about this, and then we walk square into a sign that says, Welcome to Shakespeare Glen. <laughs> and so what was going on there? What was going on was that I was so committed to my idea of that night, so committed to the fun that I had, the things that I enjoyed, that I didn't want to think that there could be some other way that it actually was. I wanted to protect my idea of that night because of how special it was to me. And today, the passage that we're going to be looking at, we're going to see that oftentimes that we are so committed to our own ideas of how we would like Jesus to be, that we oftentimes have a hard time seeing Jesus for who he is. So I'm going to say that one more time. Because we're often committed to our own versions of how we'd like Jesus to be, we often have a hard time seeing Jesus for who he actually is. The story we're going to look at has two different types of characters besides Jesus in it. Um, one are the disciples um, who are praising Jesus as king and who are rejoicing. And the other characters that are in the story are the Pharisees who are rebuking Jesus. And while we're going to see that both of these groups kind of have opposite reactions to who Jesus is, they both share the same uh, refusal to admit that Jesus is often different from the versions of who we want him to be. So as we look at today's passage, we're going to see that that takes place in us as well, that we have a hard time worshiping Jesus for who he is because he's just not who we'd like him to be sometimes. Yet despite this, we all have hope. Today's big idea that we're going to be talking about is that since Jesus is king, that we can worship him. And we're going to be looking at that by talking about two main points. First, that we can worship Jesus because he reveals our hearts. And second, that we can worship Jesus because he heals our hearts. 
So Jesus reveals our hearts and heals our hearts. So look with me at Luke 19, verses 37 through 40. If you have a Bible or else it might be up here in a second. Um, I'll read it for us and then I'll pray and then we'll get into the rest of the message for today. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray really quick, and we'll get into today's message. Father, I thank you um, that you give us um, your word and your spirit and your son to show us who you are, even though we have hearts that often don't like who you are, that you continue to move towards us, continue to love us, and continue to show us your strength and tenderness and kindness. And I pray that you'd be with us today as we look at your word and that we'd see you more clearly and that you would have our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first point that we're going to look at today is that we can worship Jesus because he reveals our hearts. So let's think about the two characters in this story. Uh, Besides Jesus, we have the disciples and we have the Pharisees. And so the disciples here, it's important for us to remember that these aren't just the 12 apostles or the 12 main disciples. These are kind of like the collective following of Jesus, the people who have been listening to him, have been being healed by him, who have been learning from him for years. Many of them have left their families and left big important things to come follow Jesus. And yet despite all this commitment, sometimes they mistake who Jesus is. They, they kind of understand who he is, but they oftentimes don't. They understand that Jesus is the Messiah, but a lot of times they think that the Messiah is purely there to overthrow the Romans and to give them all cool places of power where they could have some fame and some ease. And throughout the Gospels, we constantly see Jesus correcting and helping his disciples see that that's not the main reason he came. He came for more than just overthrowing the Romans. And then there are the Pharisees in this passage. And they've always kind of kept a critical distance from Jesus. They didn't really like him because they took the spotlight off of their own spiritual performance. They'd oftentimes try to trap Jesus by getting him in weird arguments where he could maybe say something negative about the Roman government or about who God was. They didn't like Jesus because they threatened their role as the professional God-talkers of the day as the prime moral examples of the day. So throughout the Gospels, we also see Jesus constantly confronting and challenging the Pharisees' idea of who Jesus is. So with both of these characters, despite their different reactions to who Jesus is, we see that throughout the whole Gospel, Jesus is both confronting both of them and saying, like, hey, you have a heart problem. You're not seeing me for who I am. Let me help you. Let me move towards you and help you to see who I am. So imagine with me a kind of a ludicrous scenario. Um, imagine that there is a family who owns a zoo, um, and they have a little boy and a little girl. Um, and the little girl, you know, loves snakes. Um, she 
can't get enough of them. She wants to learn all about them. And some of you here in the crowd today, remember if you were, when you were a kid or maybe you're a kid today, when you liked something, you read all about it. You wanted to know all the types of snakes, all the colors, where they live, what they did. You want to know all about it. So the girl was really into snakes. And the little boy, on the other hand, was really into trees. He liked big trees, small trees, um, really thick trees, really skinny trees, trees of all different colors and shapes and sizes. And he wanted to learn all about these types of trees. And so one day, because um, the parents owned a zoo, they thought, hey, you know, we have this elephant that we're about to bring in. They've never seen an elephant before. Um, and so we wanted to kind of play this little trick on our kids. We're going to blindfold them and safely let them touch this elephant and see if they know what the elephant is. And so first they decide, well, we'll let our little girl figure that out first. So they blindfold her, and they're holding her, and like, okay, reach your hand out and feel, feel what this is and see if you can tell us what you're touching. So she reaches out, and she feels this really slimy, kind of scaly, slithery thing, and she's touching the trunk. But because she's touching it, because she knows all, this th- all these things about snakes, because she really likes snakes, she wants it to be a snake, she goes, this has to be a snake. Mom and Dad, this is a new snake. We found a new snake. Thank you so much for bringing this new snake. And they say, okay, well, it's actually an elephant. I want you to go over there and wait. We're going to go let your brother feel the elephant, too, and see what he does. So they pick up the little boy, have him blindfolded, and they safely bring him over, let him reach out and touch the elephant. And he reaches around, and he feels this big, ginormous leg. And he's like, ugh, it's like really you know, rough, and it feels like bark. This, it's so round. It's got to be a tree, right? Like, I have no trees. This feels like a tree. This feels like a new tree. So I'm going to tell my mom and dad this is totally a tree. So he tells them that this is a tree. And so in this circumstance, what we see is that both the little girl and the boy want the elephant to be a snake or to be a tree. They want the elephant to be what they're most interested in. And that's exactly what we see happening with the Pharisees and the disciples. They want Jesus to be what they're most interested in. They have a blindness in their hearts that is similar to the blindfold that is over the eyes of the little girl and the little boy. They're unable to see Jesus for who he is. So for the Pharisees, we see that throughout the Gospels, that they thought that if Jesus really was the Messiah, if he was um, this big, important person sent from God, that he should be able to exemplify spiritual practice and piety. That if he was the Messiah, he wouldn't sit with tax collectors or sinners or the poor or the lame. And he would definitely recognize how righteous we are as the Pharisees. And he'd exemplify us and give us dignity. For the disciples, even here in this passage, the disciples really aren't praising Jesus for who he actually is. As the Son of God come to bring us life to the fullest in relationship with God. Instead, the disciples are praising the idea of a Jesus who would kick out the Romans and who would give them all places of position and power and ease. And, and we see even only in three chapters later that these very disciples abandon Jesus. When he's arrested, they run away from him. And it's not even hard to imagine that many of the followers in the crowd who are now crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, would soon be shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. And they cry this out because Jesus failed to be what they wanted him to be. And isn't this the reality for us sometimes? Whether we would consider ourselves followers of Christ or if we consider ourselves super far away from calling ourselves Christians, we're all radically disappointed with who Jesus is sometimes because he's not what we'd like him to be. For some of us, 
he's a God who hasn't yet healed our family's sufferings. Uh, sometimes he's the God who hasn't helped us realize our dreams yet. Sometimes he's the God who hasn't brought justice for the social issues that we're most concerned about. Sometimes he's also the God who hasn't answered our doubts satisfactorily. But for others of us, we're a little resistant to admitting that we're disappointed with Jesus. We think that there's something scared in acknowledging that we actually have unfulfilled longings. Instead of being an elephant, we'd rather Jesus be the tree or the snake. Instead of admitting the darkness of our hearts, we'd rather just keep the status quo. And we see that we all have this heart problem. We all have a blindness that keeps us from seeing Jesus as he is. Jesus' ability to reveal our hearts is actually something that is quite equalizing. Um, Because it even shows that even the most devout, loving, kind-hearted person is on the same playing field. That even the most devout follower of Christ can refuse to worship him as he is. Jesus reveals the smallness of all of our desires. But sometimes we don't really care. Sometimes we think that, you know what, if I'm just so disappointed with who you are, what's the point of hanging in there with you if I know I really want something else? If I know that you're not giving me what I want right now? Should we abandon Jesus? Should we like the disciple or should we like the Jews and the Romans and the Pharisees cry out, crucify him, crucify him, and look into the world for another option? An option that doesn't at times offend us or disappoint us? Should the revealing of our heart's blindness to who Jesus really is cause us to double down like I did in Forest Park and abandon Jesus? No. The offense of Jesus that offends something inside of each of us is not a reason to abandon him. Jesus reveals us out of love. He's not a tyrant or one who comes to shame you for the exposure of your heart. Rather, the revealing brings us a reason to come near God because he wants to move towards us in that vulnerability and heal our brokenness. So here we see that we can worship Jesus because he does reveal our hearts. And next we'll be looking at that we can worship Jesus because he heals our hearts. And if you're looking at the passage, there's a very weird ending to this passage. Um, In verse 40, we see Jesus respond to the Pharisees who are telling the disciples to stop proclaiming Jesus as king. And he responds to the Pharisees by saying, I tell you, even if these disciples or followers of mine were silent, the very stones would cry out. So if it's not obvious why this is odd, um, I think we all need to acknowledge that stones don't make noise. They don't talk to you. Um, I don't remember the last time a concrete wall said, hey, Zach. Um, so what, what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is telling the Pharisees that if he were to quiet his followers, that God could even use the senseless creatures to testify to the true nature of who he is. That he is indeed the king of the Lord that he has come to bring a sinful people into relationship with a holy God. In short, Jesus is saying that the praise of God is irresistible. That even if we were to put up alternatives to worship, even mindless things would be drawn to the beauty of who Jesus is and would want to worship him. It's kind of like Jesus is comparing himself to water against all other things that we could drink. Um, 
So imagine, uh, if you're a kid, imagine, you know, it's been really cold outside. You, uh, like me, have been putting on coats and hats and scarves and gloves. Um, and at times, you know, you'll be outside with friends and you'll be playing and you'll get really, really sweaty and really, really hot before you know it. So when you come inside, you're hot, you're exhausted. Do you really want to drink a piping hot cup of hot chocolate? Is that really what's going to satisfy your thirst? Or if you're an adult and you're at work all day, you're going from meeting to meeting, talking to people, and probably looking at way too many Excel spreadsheets that any person should today, do you really want to come home and just drink alcohol? It's like, no. It's like both hot chocolate and alcohol are awesome, but there's something about if we just drank those that wouldn't satisfy what we are longing for, that we couldn't actually survive if we just drank hot chocolate and just drank alcohol. We actually need to be satisfied by water. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. You can try and stop yourself from going to water, but in the end, you're going to be dissatisfied and craving. And this is despite how happy you can be with your hot chocolate or your alcohol. You still want water. Human beings, indeed the whole creation, are designed to crave and praise God in the person of Jesus. And so what does that mean for you and I? What does that mean when we find that we're the Pharisee that despises Jesus for messing up our spiritual systems and performances? What does it mean when you're a a follower of Jesus and would rather him set up a different kingdom than this kingdom? It means that we have hope. That we have hope in being honest about our disappointments about who Jesus is. It means that we can stop moving towards the things that we think will satisfy us that actually just leave us confused and isolated and afraid. It means that we can let go of spiritual performance because Christ has performed perfectly for us. It means that we can let go of culture wars and follow Christ in the midst of culture because he has won the ultimate battle. We can let go again and again and return to Jesus. But how? How do we let go of our heart commitments? There are heart commitments. We want them. In short, we can only let go of our heart commitments and worship Jesus because he's the God who does the impossible. He's the God who can raise up stones to worship him. He's the God who can enter into a human being and be perfectly God, perfectly man. He is the one who can live faithfully the lives that we should have lived. He is the God who loves without limits, who rescues the poor, who defends the weak, the widow, and the orphan. He is the God that defends the oppressed. He heals the sick, and he defeats death by taking it head on for you and I. Because this is who Jesus is, he can handle our heart blindness. He can expose it and he can heal it. And so whether you're somebody who considers themselves a part of the church or somebody who considers themselves as far off from the church as you could imagine being, Jesus is your day-to-day hope. Whether you abandon Jesus like his disciples did in the garden, when he threatens your idea of what his kingdom should look like, Jesus is still your hope. Whether you abandon Jesus like Peter did three times when you're tested, Jesus is still your hope. Whether you abandon Jesus like the Pharisees, Romans, and the Jews who shouted for him to be crucified, Jesus is still your hope. 
Jesus alone is worth going to because he alone can reveal your heart and change it, however so slowly. Jesus is strong enough to reveal it and confront it. He can open our hearts and help us see our heart commitments. And yet he's also gentle enough. He's gentle and tender enough to help us slowly let go of them and instead embrace him. And we long for that type of love, that type of love that is both strong and full of strength and yet gentle and tender. And that's what we've wanted our whole lives, right? It's like that's what we wanted from our dads. We wanted our dads to be able to do anything and everything that we can imagine. We wanted him to be able to... Um, you know, dunk on goals that were 12 feet tall, wanted him to be able to, you know, mow the yard in like 30 seconds flat. Like, we wanted him to be awesome. But we also wanted him to be tender and gentle with us when he came and moved towards us. We also wanted this um, from, like, think about the policewoman on the corner. We want her to be strong enough to handle any bully in the neighborhood and strong enough to hoist you on your sho- her shoulders to help you find your parents when you've lost them in a crowd. We want lots of muscle, and we want lots of restraint. And there's an innate yearning for that in most of us, in all of us, that we want that muscle and that restraint, that strength and that tenderness. And this is what Jesus does for us. He doesn't do it by bullying us, but by convincing us through love. By coming to us, by serving us, by dying for us, and by destroying death for us. And it's because he's a king who fights for us. He's a king who gives us his spirit. He's a king that helps us let go of our misguided heart commitments and enables us to truly proclaim him as the king who has come. And that as that king, when he returns again, that he will be the king who heals your family's sufferings. That he will be the king who delivers to us greater dreams than we can yet now desire. He will be the king who brings justice for the oppressed and the weak and who will answer all of our doubts. So as a community, as the church, that's what we exist for, is to be a place where God can do his work, because he's made us for that. It's to be a place who can all again continue to come to Jesus over and over again, no matter if it's for the first time or for the millionth time, to again come and bear your heart to him, because he alone can show you it, and he alone can heal you in that. And so as we come to the table, let us pray really quick. Um, that God would be doing this work in our hearts, um, that we would again return to him. Father, thank you that you are a king who is strong and yet tender, who is kind, and who moves towards us. We thank you, God, that you um, speak to our hearts when we both have hard hearts that look sometimes like the Pharisee and sometimes like the misguided disciple. You're our hope. And we long for you. Help us to come together as a community that moves one another towards you and that allows us to um, wrestle with who you are and to name our doubts and our frustrations with who you are because you're big enough and strong enough to handle those things and move towards us in love. In Jesus' name, amen.